Well, good morning. Easter is only two weeks away. Can you believe that? That's just amazing to me. Let me ask you, do you love Jesus? I'll ask, do you really love Jesus? I mean, really, do you really love him? You know, we are in Mark 14. It is the longest chapter in the whole book of Mark. So I'm going to have to summarize some things and we might have some verses pop up and you're going to have to do due diligence and read it thoroughly uh, because if I just read it, it would take 30 minutes. But it really, it, it is a comparison and contrast between this incredible love for Jesus and betrayal and denial of Jesus. And I mean, think about it. Have you, have you ever uh, been betrayed by somebody? Has anybody ever betrayed you? You know, I think back almost 40 years ago, and I can think back to a very vivid memory of being betrayed by someone I thought was supposed to be for me, a friend, somebody in our church. And uh, it, it was the most heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching thing I'd ever been through in my life, betrayal, denial. And yet that is exactly what Jesus will experience. We go from, from one extreme to the other, incredible devotion to betrayal and denial. Let me give you the setting where we are, Mark 14. Everybody's familiar with it. Um, every time, every month that we have communion, you're familiar with the setting because it, it happens right in the middle of Mark chapter 14. Uh, so Jesus has spent this wonderful time in the upper room. This took place on Thursday uh, with the disciples and they shared communion together and he taught us what it was all about. Uh, it was so it was within this context, John, the, the famous upper room discourse would take place, John 14, 15, 16, 17. So the communion is really this, this last Passover first supper is the hinge to the entire chapter. But I really want us to concentrate because, because uh, John McHale on Good Friday is going to be talking about the communion aspect uh, then. So I want us to talk about more about the comparison and contrast of what surrounds, what's going on, uh, the setting of this entire beautiful chapter. I mean, the whole word betrayal is used seven times. Denial is used seven times, uh, five times, excuse me. And I know for us, we're thinking, I would, I would never betray Jesus. I would I'd never deny Jesus. And, and yet, when you think about it, when you stop and think about it, when you look at the words themselves, we tend to do this more than we would ever want to think possible. See, to betray paradidomi just merely means to hand over. And, and every time we sin, we really hand over Jesus' desire and we do our own thing. Every time we read in God's word that God wants us to act a certain way or to have a certain attitude, and if we go the opposite direction, we deny, we betray Jesus and we deny him every time we sin and go in opposite direction. Now, most of you understand that the betrayer is Judas, the denier is Peter. You, know, you, get, you get to the end of the section and Judas felt so bad that he betrayed Jesus, he goes out and kills himself. Now, now Peter feels bad that he denies Jesus, and he cries, he weeps. You know, what's the difference between the two? Why does one end up dead and the other ends up you know, writing part of the New Testament? What made a difference? I want us to first look at this betrayal. 
we're going to see it betrayal from without and betrayal from within. The betrayal from without starts with the Roman soldiers. And now this is late, real late Thursday, or really you could say early, early Friday morning. It would be about two o'clock or so our time. It's after the upper room. They've walked to the Mount of Olives. Jesus has predicted the denials. And now Jesus is praying and James and Peter and John all, all fall asleep. Well, you can understand why they fall asleep. It's about two in the morning. And Jesus said, are you still sleeping? The hour has come. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer's at hand. And then immediately we see Judas coming up. He comes with about 500 soldiers and he betrays him with a kiss. And then the guards seize him. Uh, they lay hands on him. They have all their clubs. And now Peter comes up and he strikes the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. His name was Malchus, the high priest. And Jesus says, have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple and teaching and you didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and they fled. Um, so it's two o'clock. The deed has already been done. Peter, uh, not Peter, Judas. Judas has already met with Caiaphas, the high priest. They've already negotiated on a price, 30 pieces of silver. The, the same price uh, in the Old Testament you would have to give to a person if your ox gored a slave. 30 pieces of silver. The price has already been negotiated. He's already made arrangements. He's left the Passover in order to go tell Annas that the plot is in play. I'm getting ready to hand Jesus over to you. I know what's going to come next. Get your soldiers ready. They would then have to contact Pilate, get ready for an emergency a civil trial about seven in the morning. There, there would be a couple of religious trials. So everything is in play now. And during this whole night, so this is early, early Friday morning, or we, we would call it late, late Thursday night, uh, Pilate's wife is having a nightmare about Jesus. All of this is happening at the same time. So this mob comes, 500 soldiers we find out come. And so Jesus asks, we find in John, the, the parallel gospels, John says, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Then Jesus in John, it's recorded, he answers with the divine name of God. I am he. And the moment he gives the divine name of God, he uses a word in Greek here in John, they all fell back. It's a very specific word that is referring to uh, soldiers who fall back before a dominant military force. Even though he is being arrested by Roman soldiers, Jesus is proving that he is sovereign over this entire situation. I always think of Philippians chapter 2, when they fell back. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even his enemies will ascribe to him. Can you imagine it? That these soldiers bring swords to arrest the Prince of Peace. And of course, you know, Peter, in all of his arrogance, he takes out his, he uses the word makia for the sword. It's a short sword. They probably use it in the upper room uh, for the lamb. He takes out the short sword. He hits the top of, of the servant's helmet, glances off to the side, cuts off his ear, Malchus's ear. And then that's Jesus' last miracle. His last miracle on earth is he takes the ear and puts it back on. 
oral tradition says that Malchus later uh, becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. But they bring swords to arrest the Prince of Peace. Jesus looks at Judas. Judas, would you hand over, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Luke twenty-two forty-eight. And he uses the word Son of Man because the word Son of Man out of Daniel 7 shows that he is the judge, the coming king, the Messiah, God himself, who will come and rule over all the earth. He is the Prince of Peace. And I think, how many times do we betray Jesus? We talk about Jesus, we sing about Jesus out of one corner of our mouth, and then the other corner we say things that would grieve the Holy Spirit. That's to hand Jesus over. We have certain attitudes. We, we have certain actions, things that we do, things that we say. But the verdict in all this arrest is that Jesus clearly is the Lord. Jesus' own trial in my life and in your life every single day. Am I going to choose me or am I going to choose Jesus? Is it something that I want, I want to try and manipulate, I want to try and do, or is it something that God is directing, that God is doing? If I choose me over God, I am betraying Jesus. I'm denying the Holy Spirit. So will you believe him? Will you obey him? Or will you betray him? So now we come, that's the first, the first big betrayal. Betrayal before the, the soldiers. Then there's the betrayal before the religious courts. It's about now, 3 o'clock Friday morning. And Jesus is taken bound to the house of Annas. Annas was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who is the high priest. So about three o'clock, it's uh, in the, what's called John 18, 12, says it's in the hall of justice. Now I want you to see what's taking place. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the great I Am, is arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, and he's taken now to the hall of Annas, uh, to, to his home, to the hall of justice. He has to go across the Kidron Valley. This is right after Passover. They speculate that there were over a quarter of a million lambs that were slaughtered during the Passover. So the Lamb of God, now coming, has to cross the Kidron Valley. He has to go right through the blood of a quarter of a million lambs that were slaughtered. And Jesus now is going as the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, to his own death, going uh, to be illegally tried in the palace of Annas, in this first trial, it was illegal. It was at night. It was without witnesses. He had to testify him against himself, which was illegal. So in the first trial, though, we find Jesus is innocent. They wanted Jesus crucified. This was from the beginning. This was back in Mark chapter 3. They wanted him dead. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to humiliate him on a cross. But that could not happen from just blasphemy. That was a religious charge. Uh, it had to be for treason for Rome to execute him. So Annas now sends Jesus to the house of Caiaphas. Normally, it would have been to the hall of hewn stones. But again, this is another, the second illegal trial. The first was illegal in the Hall of Justice. The second is illegal. It's at night, Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin at the house of Caiaphas. 
Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus weren't there. All had to be present. The high priest couldn't vote. He votes. It was illegal. Voting was supposed to go from the youngest to the oldest. That didn't happen. You couldn't hire witnesses. They hired them. You couldn't hold the trial at the time it was being held. They did it. Every, you look at Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, it gives uh, the rules of jurisprudence, and almost everyone was violated. There's a rabbi, Rabbi Weiss, said that if the biblical account is correct, now, he wasn't saying it was or wasn't, he's just saying if the biblical account is correct, then there were at least 20 violations. Jesus couldn't say anything. It was, it was at least he held to the oral tradition that he didn't say something uh, against this civil trial. He couldn't open his mouth. He obeyed the legal tradition. They didn't. And so Caiaphas now wants to quickly get on to the religious aspect of the trial. The religious charge, this charge, Jesus could answer. So that's in Mark 14, 60 to 65. So he remained silent at the religious charge, at, at the uh, civil charge. The civil charge, again, they hired false witnesses. They couldn't get any. They only had a couple of people who said, oh, yeah, we heard him say that uh, if he destroys the temple, he'll rebuild it in three days. That was the only thing they had that he said, I'll destroy the temple and rebuild it. So they quickly moved to the religious uh, charge that he could answer. And so Caiaphas then says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Most High? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so at this point, he tears his garments, which was illegal against the law. And what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And they began to spit on him and cover his face, strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. <clears throat> Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Yes, I am. And you're going to see, and he uses that term out of Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. You're going to see the son of man. Jesus was claiming to be God, there's so many people that I talk to, well, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus really claim to be God. Listen, in the mind of a Jew hearing this, and that was their context, you couldn't have been more blatant. It was an absolute claim to deity, taking this passage, the most dramatic passage out of Daniel chapter 7, showing that the Messiah is coming and will ascend to the throne in all glory and with all power uh, in the, as God himself judging the heavens and the earth, and bringing peace on earth. Jesus claims to be that one. And so that's why Caiaphas, again, which was against the law, tears his, rips his robe and passes judgment and influences the court. And he says, I mean, he just disregards law totally. What need do we have for any further witnesses? It's a done deal. This was just a kangaroo court. And so about from 3.45 a.m. on, the Pharisees and Sadducees, as you look at the other gospel accounts, just pour out venom and hatred and judgment and beatings on Jesus. And the only thing you have about Jesus is that he is claiming to be deity. That's not treason warranting crucifixion. So now by the law, they were supposed to let a day go by the between trials, first trial, second trial. So what they did, they pulled an in around. They said, okay, well, let's just reconvene at sunup, and that'll be another day. 
So they send them home, four o'clock, they come back an hour and a half later, they reconvene in this, in, in, and again, in Caiaphas's house, uh, and, um, right there where the, where the courtyard is, and we're gonna find out that Peter's there in a few minutes. Just picture Peter in the courtyard. This is all happening there, and Pilate is already summoned. You need to be ready at 7 a.m. for the civil trial. So everything's happening all at once. But when Pilate comes, that's chapter 15. Doug's going to cover that uh, next week, Mark 15. So this mockery, all it does is prove the innocence of the accused and the guilt of the accusers. It was absolute, total betrayal and rejection of the Savior. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, folks, and I know each and every one of you have experienced this, life isn't fair. Have you ever have you ever felt that? Have you ever gone through something where you just say, life just isn't fair? Ha! Listen, I've got six kids. Every single one of that, them have said that about their teachers. You know, they're not fair. <laughs> and, and we grow up and, and things just haven't changed. Life just doesn't seem fair. So let me encourage you. God took a very illegal, unfair trial held by unrighteous people and used it to accomplish His perfect will. Now that should encourage you. I think too many times when we think from our perspective life isn't fair, what we're doing is thinking, oh, Jesus has abandoned me. God has abandoned me. God must be out of the picture. God really doesn't care when the reality is he absolutely cares and is in control of everything. So the lesson I think we can take away is somebody can treat you unfairly, but it does not keep God from treating you fairly. God is always righteous. So what I want you to do is turn to your neighbor and I want you to say back and forth, life doesn't always seem fair, but God is. Turn to your neighbor right now. Life doesn't always seem fair, but God is. Now you can take that to your grave, to your grave because life isn't always fair, but God is. The verdict of the second trial is Jesus is innocent. God is righteous. So let's look. That's betrayal from without. Let's look at betrayal from within. Just a couple of minutes to explain it. Uh, every, every single one of you here probably, you've heard the term Judas the betrayer, Peter the denier. So I'm going to just hit them pretty quickly. So we find out that Judas the betrayer, all this has been going on, you know, a long time. And you go back a few days. Now we're, we're Friday morning. You go back to Wednesday. And Luke 22.3 says that on Wednesday, Satan himself entered into Judas, operating through Judas' greed, taking advantage of his unregenerate heart that spurned Jesus. Uh, the devil possesses Judas now to carry out an act of treachery. So Judas said it's already happened. He's gone to Caiaphas. He negotiated for the 30 pieces of silver. He's already gone. He's 
left the Passover. He's told Annas about the plot. Everything's underway. Get Pilate. Get everybody together. And uh, Mark 14, 11 uh, talks about the, the betrayal. So do you see how Jesus was betrayed? He was betrayed by the nation. He was betrayed by Israel. He was betrayed by a disciple who has walked with him and talked with him. He has sat under his teaching for three years. He's betrayed by him. But not just Judas. He was betrayed by Peter as well, early Friday. In the garden, Peter defends Jesus before soldiers and leaders, but in the courtyard, he denies Jesus before servants and slaves. Look at verse 66, Mark 14. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself. Again, this is in the courtyard. Guess what is just now happening in the courtyard? He's being tried again. Right there at the house. And now we're going to find out from Luke, as Peter's in the courtyard, Jesus is being marched through the courtyard, their eyes are going to meet. Jesus and Peter will come face to face with each other in the courtyard. So this is what's going on. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. He denies it, saying, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man's one of them. Again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. He began to invoke a curse on himself. He began to swear. I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And at this point, he breaks down and he weeps. Luke says he weeps. He doesn't just weep. Luke says he weeps bitterly. He curses and then he weeps bitterly. What happened to Peter? One moment he's a sword-wielding saint. Now he's a denying coward. Now think of this. Peter denying Jesus now walks through the courtyard. Their eyes meet. Why would he start weeping? I'm sure the moment their eyes met, Jesus, just through his glance, said, Peter, you may not know me, but I know you. Peter, you may not love me, but I love you. Peter, you may have denied me three times, but Peter, I will never deny you. And I'm going to the cross to pay for your sin. He wasn't brave. He wasn't dependable. He was a liar. He wasn't truthful. He wasn't even courageous. He was a chicken, a lying chicken. But when he sees Jesus, he breaks down weeping bitterly. What happened to Peter? I mean, Judas just feels so bad he kills himself. But Peter, when his eyes meet Jesus' eyes, I'll tell you what happened to him. I'll tell you why he's in heaven and Judas is in hell. It's because when their eyes met, Peter just like every single one of us here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have all been here. 
we come to that moment in time when we have that Romans 7 moment. Wretched man that I am. That's what Peter had right there. That's what every single one of us who trust Jesus as our Savior must have. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? I'll tell you who. It's Jesus. It's the one who will look at you with eyes of compassion, with eyes of love. It was right there. Peter had a 1 Timothy 1 moment, just like you and me. I am, I am the chief of sinners. Tozer said God can't use a man totally until he humbles him completely. And this was Peter's come to Jesus moment. But I want to contrast that horrid betrayal and denial to a picture of extravagant devotion. And what makes a difference is the communion in the middle. That's why we're supposed to do it often, to remember. It's supposed to make this kind of difference in our life. Just prior to all these sequence of events. And the Gospels are so, it's unusual at this point. A lot of them are chronological. At this point, Luke doesn't even have it. Uh, but uh, John is the only one who puts it in chronological context. In John 12, he says, this happened six days before the Passover. So right now, we're Friday, but let's go all the way back, back in time to Saturday, the day before the triumphal entry. They're in Bethany, remember, getting ready for the triumphal entry. So here, this is how Mark 14 starts. While he was in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask, poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, given to the poor. They scolded her. But Jesus said, you leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. Wherever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She, she has anointed my body beforehand for my burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the entire world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I want you to see this incredible, beautiful picture of extravagant love and devotion. Is your love and devotion more like Judas? You talk about Jesus, you talk to Jesus, you partner with Jesus, you walk with Jesus. And yet I'll tell you what, if you can't get something out of him, you set him aside. Or is your love and devotion more like Peter? You love him as long as it doesn't cost you. It was going to cost Peter his life, as so he thought. If he identifies with Jesus, he's going to go to the cross too. So is, it, is your love more like Judas? I'm fine as long as I'm getting stuff from him. He answers my prayers. He gives me wealth. He gives me health. Does all these things. Or is it, I'm fine with Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me? Or is it more like Mary? Folks, her, her love and devotion 
was costly. It was, it was pure spinknard from the Himalayas. It was a year's salary for her. It was very intentional. I mean, she sure, she had it wrapped up, saved. I mean, they would just use barely a drop. It was so powerful, they just barely used a drop. And you could smell it throughout the house if anybody used spinknard, pure spinknard. It was, it was totally sacrificial. She breaks the jar, alabaster jar. She breaks it, all of it. I mean, you think, well, if, if hey, Mary, if you're really a good devotion uh, follower of Jesus, you would maybe take a tenth of the bottle. You know, at least tithe it. Take a tenth and sprinkle it on Jesus. Or if you're really devoted, you might take 15%. Or if you're super, super, super devoted, you might take 20% of the bottle. Obviously, we're not talking about money here. She breaks it. She breaks it. The other Gospels say that she poured it over his head and she took her hair. She wiped, she wiped his feet, his legs with this pure spinknard. No wonder the Gospels say that it filled the whole room. It was his preparation for burial. Now I want you to get the picture. Others, others thought it was a terrible waste of money. That it was an extravagant expression of love. And yet Mary looked at it as not valuing the substance, but valuing Jesus. It was absolute action, total action. Got the picture? When did this happen? It happened the day before triumphal entry. So one drop would have been enough. She gets the whole jar. It costs a year's worth of salary salary to buy something like this. And now he goes into the triumphal entry. As he goes in, Hosanna, Hosanna, what do people smell? They smell the fragrance of Mary's love and extravagant devotion. Jesus is crying, knowing that they're going to reject him. Then he goes, then he goes into the Passover. With the, with the disciples, as he washes their feet, what do they smell? They smell this incredible aroma of Mary's devotion. And then they go into the, into the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. Here come the soldiers, 500 soldiers. What do they smell as they fall back? They, they smell Mary's love and devotion of Jesus. And then he's taken into the, into these two, Totally illegal trials where they mock him, beat him, spit on him, and they smell Mary's love and devotion. I think when they were in, in that lobby and Peter looks, sees Jesus, I think he got hit by a double whammy. I think he not only sees the eyes of Jesus in Luke, he also smells the incredible love and extravagant devotion of Mary. And he understands the difference of the two and he is struck to the quick. He is then flogged. Can you imagine being so close to Jesus to put a crown of thorns on his head 
His hair was drenched with the spinknard. What are they going to smell? What will the, what will the executioners who are nailing nails through his feet and his hands smell as they do that? They're going to smell the love of Mary. This is why Jesus is saying, He's being prepared for his burial. Those who wrap the linen cloths around him to put him in the tomb, that's what they'll smell. Incredible devotion. Everywhere Jesus went, the smell of Mary's love and devotion went with him. It was extravagant. It was intentional. It was selfless. It was generous. It was reckless and sacrificial. So let me ask you, do you you really love Jesus? I didn't ask, do you sing songs about him? I said, do you really love Jesus? Or is your love more like Judas? You want to use Jesus for how you can benefit from him? Health, wealth, answer to your prayers, things for your kids, etc., your own personal selfishness. Is your love more like Peter? It's only as deep as it is convenient and non-threatening for you as long as it won't cost you anything. Or is it like Mary? Costly, intentional, generous, sacrificial, extravagant, I love the word Dave used last week, reckless, outrageous. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who died on the cross to take away the sins of the world, is totally worthy of our absolute, total, complete, sacrificial pouring out of our lives him. I was going through this a message with uh, Kelly, one of the secretaries at Parkview. And uh, so we go through and that's how she does, types up all the sermon notes. And I got to the end and we, we got to Mary and she's going, Jeff. She said, that reminds me so much of my mom. I said, tell me, tell me about it, Kelly. She said, I led her to Christ three and a half years ago, September of 2015. And, you know, she was fine. She did okay. She said, but this last year, my mom just is on fire for Jesus. That's all this passage is saying. Mary was on fire for Jesus. She was sold out uh, for Jesus. And when you are, everywhere you go, people will be able to smell the aroma of your love and devotion in your neighborhood, in your classroom, at school, meetings, wherever you go, they will smell the love of Jesus. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your incredible love. And we pray, Lord, if if there's anybody here this morning that's not quite there yet, I just pray that they would be like Peter, that they would come, 
that they would experience one of those come-to-Jesus moments, that they would just see the wretchedness of their own sin. Uh, just maybe it's because they're trying to use you. Or whenever things get tough, they flee from you or flee from your word and, and attempt to deny you or betray you. I, I just pray that they would be like, like Peter and just come to that point realizing that they are a wretched, lost sinner without the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith, your trust in Christ, I, I beg you to do that. Come to an end to yourself and say, Jesus, I want you. Nobody else, nothing else, I want you. Thank you that you're going to the cross, as we'll look at in the next couple of weeks, to die. You did die for me, and I can have life in you. We thank you for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.